Let me pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll begin our sermon. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your love. Thank you for uh, your care. Thank you, Father, that uh, you speak to us through your word, and that we can know you um, by the power of your spirit. Grateful for what Jesus has done for us, and I pray that today, as we hear the word preached, that we come and worship, that you do uh, transform us and give us greater faith. We love you. We trust you. It's in your son's name we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so as we begin, I want to say two things. One, happy Father's Day. Uh, happy Father's Day to all you fathers as well. I want to acknowledge, you know, this, this day as we celebrate specifically fathers, uh, it can be tough on some of us. Some of us have uh, different circumstances. Maybe you've lost your father or maybe, um, you know, well, I'm not going to name them all, but there could be difficult things. I just want to let you know that this is a place that, that you don't have to be strong, that you don't have to pretend like you're just getting through, but this is a place where you can be vulnerable and honest. Uh, this is a church of broken people that understand this is a broken world, and, and sin has an effect on us, and, it's, and that's okay. We have a hope in Jesus Christ. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and cares about us, and, and that's the promise and truth that we have. So, happy Father's Day. Uh, I'm glad that you're here to worship Christ along with us. And two, I want to say thank you to the many of you who uh, were so generous to Jen and I on our sabbatical, who gave us uh, the gift cards. We felt and feel very loved by that. So thank you uh, very much for that. Uh, Today's an exciting day for us here at Maranatha because we are starting a new sermon series. We're starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 Peter. So if you would please open your Bibles there in 1 Peter. Uh, If you're not quite sure where that is, it's near the end of the New Testament. If you see Hebrews, just go a few more pages. If you reach Revelation, you've gone too far. Go back a couple pages uh, and you'll be able to find it. And if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, it'll be on page 953. Now, we often mention this, but if you don't have a Bible... We would love for you to take that one home with you, the one that's in front of you, because our desire is that everyone would have a copy of God's Word in their home or with them so they can read and understand what God has already said and not just rely on the guy with the microphone, right? Because, our, again, our desire is that we all read and study God's Word for ourselves. And while I'm mentioning that, I want to also point out the resource wall. All those books on those shelves are free, so don't be shy to take a book. The only thing that we ask is that you read it. Right? Don't just take books and, and, and stack them on your shelves, because that's not going to do anybody any good. But take the book and read the book and then share that truth. We want to understand God's Word the best that we possibly can, because the more we know about Christ, the greater love and obedience we'll have for Him. All right? So, uh, again, don't be shy. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and read our passage for today uh, in First Peter. Uh, the title of this series is Born Again to a Living Hope. And we'll do that, we'll begin this by standing first in reverence for God's word, and then I will read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray again for us. Father, I just want to say thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come and hear from you on a daily basis. I pray, Lord, that in this time where we do come to worship, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive this truth. Lord, build our faith. Lord, we are people who need you, who desire you. We thank you that you have come to us and you've given us such wonderful mercy and grace in your Son. 
Bless us, please, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Where are we? So um, we decided to call this series Born Again to a Living Hope because really that's a great summary for this whole entire letter. Because um, in Peter's letters, both first, and Pe- both first Peter and Second Peter, he speaks of uh, so much of a kind of ultimate hope that we have in Jesus that church history has in fact labeled him the Apostle of Hope. This is such a, a, a fitting title because Peter is trying to get across to everyone who has submitted their lives to Jesus, who is the Christ, that there is hope to grasp hold of. There's assurance to grasp hold of. Now, before we really get going here, I want to ask you a question. How would you define hope? Be careful, though, because it's a trick question. All right? It's a trick question because it's really easy for us to sometimes define something from our own limited perspective or from our experiences rather than taking the time to hear how the Bible uses a term. You see, oftentimes, when we refer to hope or when we use the word hope or what we call hope is actually just a strong desire for something to happen, even though there's no uh, definitive reason why this or that would actually come into fruition. We, we, we hope the weather is going to be nice tomorrow. We hope that our favorite team wins uh, next weekend. For me, I hope my favorite golfer wins the U.S. Open, right? We hope for things that there's no definite reason that they'll actually come to fruition. But when it comes to biblical hope, what we're meant to understand is that our hope is to be attached to something that is secure, It's meant to be attached to something that is secure. The Bible wants us to understand hope as something that we can have confident assurance in knowing that it will or that it has been done. All right? And this is the kind of hope that Peter wants for us. And in fact, again, it's the kind of hope that this entire letter is talking about. Now, the writer, the apostle Peter, he is the same Peter who we meet in the four Gospels. Yes, he is the same Peter who denied Christ three times. He's also the, the, the apostle that he's also the apostle Peter that Jesus forgave and then made the leader of the early church. You see, through Jesus' mercy and grace, Peter learned the importance of faith alone in Christ alone, which is why his primary message is for us to trust in the Lord in every circumstance. To trust in the Lord. In every circumstance. And that idea is going to make more sense as we go through the rest of this letter. Peter wrote this letter with the desire that every born again believer would grasp hold of and fundamentally know the hopeful assurance of their salvation that is only ours in Christ Jesus. Again, hence the title, Born Again to a Living Hope, right? Now, why would that be so important? Why is it so important that we understand that we are born again to a living hope? Well, in regards to the people that Peter was directly writing to, that was the only thing that would have kept them going. It's the only thing that would have kept them going. You see, this letter was written somewhere between 60 and 68 AD. And at that time, the early Christians were being ferociously persecuted. At that time, there was an emperor on the throne in Rome, and his name was Nero. And he was malicious, and he was terribly 
cruel individual. A simple example of Nero's character is how he, uh, how he set Rome on fire, burning down nearly half the city, and then blames it on the Christians in hopes that everyone else would then consider them their enemy. In fact, Nero is the guy who martyred, that means he killed, both the Apostle Paul and Peter, the Apostle who wrote this letter. According to to history, Paul was beheaded while he was in prison, but Peter was crucified by Nero. But per Peter's request, he was actually crucified upside down because he didn't see it fitting to be crucified like Christ. So here's another question for you. Why in the world would someone face such suffering and persecution? Why would someone go through this intense agony and difficulty and turmoil? Why would someone do that? Well, there's only one question, right? There's a, rather, there's only one real, true answer. It's because their hope was alive. Because the truth was alive. What gave them strength was their knowledge that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. The one that was written about back in the Old Testament, all in the ancient days, all the way back to Adam and Eve when it was proclaimed for the first time, that Jesus truly is the Christ, that he is our way, that he is the truth, and that he alone gives us life. He alone gives us life. Now think about who he's writing to. All right, sort of put yourself in their shoes. Think about who he is writing to. He was writing to a people who were in danger. Yes, they were in danger of uh, losing their livelihood, right? They had to stand on some particular principles that Christ taught uh, so they could have lost their jobs and then therefore didn't have any way to, to pay for their family, their family's needs. Uh, they were in danger of losing their social status, uh, maybe uh, losing their family members by being kicked out of their household, but they were also in danger of losing their lives. This was very serious. This really isn't something that we grasp hold of, the severity of the circumstances here in America, but they were in danger of losing their lives. Now, let me ask you, what is it that tamps out fear more than anything else? What is it that tamps out fear more than anything else? It's only one thing. It's knowing that there is now nothing to fear. The only way for fear to truly be removed is if you understand that there is nothing to fear, that you are safe. Better said, that you are secure. That the one who controls all things has placed you in the embrace of the Savior and that you can now relax into his peace which he gives to you. That's how they continue to do what they were called to do. Now, as we move into this letter... It might seem a bit strange, but Peter primes this letter of ultimate hope with the doctrine of election. He primes this encouraging letter with some real heavy, deep truth, something that's sort of hard to get your arms all the way around. He primes this letter about ultimate hope with the doctrine of election because I would say that's where our understanding of hope begins. And it's exactly what Peter is talking about. Let me reread verses, uh, these first two verses so we can have them fresh on our minds. Uh, again, this is verses 1 and 2. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied 
to you. In the beginning of this letter, in in really the the beginning verse, Peter's first point of business was to identify himself. He did this simply to let the churches know who was writing to them, but also to show them by what authority was this letter coming to them. But then, after he identifies himself, he speaks to their identity in two ways. He tells them who they are in two ways. He calls them the elect, and then he refers to them as exiles. You see, what Peter has done here is he was reminding them of their now heavenly origin as God's chosen and adopted children, but also he spoke of the current reality of their earthly residence. So he told them where you belong, who you actually are, but he didn't neglect where they were. Later on, when we'll, we'll get there in a, in a few weeks, but later on in chapter 2, verse 11, uh, verse 11, Peter calls these people, and in general, everyone else who is the church, so this would be us, he calls them sojourners. Maybe you've heard that term before. Well, a sojourner is a person who is currently present, but only has plans to stay for a short while because there's another place to which they belong. This is the condition of the Christian. This idea of sojourner is, yes, we are here, but there is another place that we belong, so we are only here for a short while. This is the condition of the Christian. As Christians, our hearts ache along with that same longing that the writer of Hebrews is talking about as a fellow sojourner in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 verse 14 says this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is our reality as we live in this world, as we go into our jobs, as we try to serve our families, as we try to unite with other believers and non-believers, and there's difficulty and frustration and things just don't seem to be working out, and we recognize the brokenness and sin of this world, and we see that there is no lasting city, but our hearts seek that city that is to come. Again, this is the condition of the Christian. Peter then mentions five different cities. So he tells them who they are, and he then tells them about five different cities. Now, there's really so much more to say here, and if you decide to study these cities, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to understand sort of the early church and the dynamics there. But what's important for us here is that by Peter's mention of these cities, what we can learn is that there were Christians scattered all over the place. There were Christians scattered all over that region. They were now believers in all sorts of neighboring countries, and there were brothers and sisters who were facing the same sort of suffering and the same sort of persecution. Again, this is the reality that we as believers, as we go from here, we can understand that our fellow brothers and sisters are going through the same things that we're going through, that we're not alone, that we don't have to feel isolated in our difficulties and our struggles and our failures We have one another because we are all falling short. And we are all facing certain trials and persecution. And each of them, every single one of them, needed the same good news. We face the same trials and we all need the same good news. Each of them needed a kind of hope that they could live by. And it was this, that they were chosen by God for new life. 
Everyone needs a kind of hope that we can live by today. And it's this, that we were chosen by God for new life. Not as as a result of our works, rather because of his immeasurably rich grace so that no one can boast of it in themselves. It was and always will be a gift of God. That's the Bible's truth. That's just a summary of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. It's just a simple summary of one little bit of paragraphs in the Bible that give us such rich and promising truth in how we are chosen, how we have an assurance of hope. Now, what Peter says next in verse 2 is very important, and we'll get to it in just a moment. But first, I want to point something out to you by stealing an idea from Pastor David. And I'll be honest, I don't feel bad because he told me he stole it from someone else. But here's the idea. We have to stop saying that certain truths or certain passages in the Bible are hard to understand. Because honestly, they're not. Rather, the problem is that we just have a hard time swallowing them. The issue is not our lack of understanding. Rather, it's our submission to what's written. That's where the difficulty is. Which is why I'm so grateful for the way that Peter articulates the theological and practical implications of our hopeful election the way that he does just in these two verses. He says that our identity as being elect exiles are according to the foreknowledge of God, the power of the Spirit, and the accomplishment of Christ. The foreknowledge of God the power of the Spirit, and the accomplishment of Christ. So let's talk about Peter's word there, that word foreknowledge. Now, this word is a big one. This word is a weighty one. And we could honestly go down all sorts of different rabbit trails trying to understand this word, but I'm going to try and quickly explain how the Bible defines it. The Bible defines God's foreknowledge by referring to how in his omniscience, that means all-knowing power, in his omniscience from eternity past, God decided who would be given salvation throughout time and therefore guaranteeing them entrance into heaven. All right? In his omniscience, God decided who would be given salvation throughout time and therefore guaranteeing them entrance into heaven. Now, as a way of homework, because there's really just too much to try and discuss in one sermon, and honestly, it's going to take a long time to cover everything when it comes to do with this idea of election, I'm going to give you a short list of passages, not an exhaustive list, but one that will help you on this journey to start studying this doctrine for yourself or maybe with somebody in your community group. So you can put those uh, verses up there now. Um, You can write them down or you can email me. I can send them to you later on if that's easier for you. But what these passages will show is not that we chose God first. They will not show you that we chose, uh, that we uh, chose God over other lesser truths in this world. Rather that God, rather what they show is that God is the singular sovereign active agent in our salvation. He is the creator of all things, therefore he has authority over all things, which means he's the only one who is able to determine all things. He is the creator, therefore he has authority, which means he is the only one who determines all things. Again, There's so much to say on this matter. So instead of going deeper into this doctrine, let me just tell you why it should bring us so much hope. 
Why does the doctrine of election give us so much hope? Peter speaks of this truth because oftentimes all we can see is what's in front of our face. All we have is the moment that we exist in. But when we remember that God has chosen us to be his before the foundations of the world were even set, then our fear, maybe our anxiety or our discontentment that we might be experiencing can appropriately be addressed. If we remember that we are chosen, that we are, we are brought into the kingdom family, our fear, anxiety, and discontentment can be appropriately dealt with. And if I may say humbly, even laid aside. It's possible to lay aside fear. It's possible to lay aside anxiety and discontentment. Because by God's choice, we have already been made more than conquerors through him who loves us. He is the one who do this. His strength is what we draw on to do that. Our election is also according to the sanctifying power of the Spirit. God's choosing of us according to his sovereign foreknowledge is then brought into time by the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. We are changed. We are born again. We are given new life by the same power that brought Christ back to life. Think about that for just a moment. The very same spiritual power, the very same spirit that led Christ and then brought him back to life now dwells in us as new believers. As Christians, as sons and daughters of the one most high, that same power now dwells within us. And we're not just made new for eternity. We're not just made new for eternity, but we are also being progressively transformed more and more into Christ's likeness through further separation of our sin. I can summarize it like this. Our regeneration is the starting point for our sanctification, which is completed at the moment of glorification. Our regeneration is the starting point for our sanctification, which is completed at the moment of our glorification. Lastly, our election is according to the accomplishment of Christ. The foreknowledge of God, the power of the Spirit, and the accomplishments of Christ. This comes from, yes, a minorly confusing phrase at first when Peter talks about the sprinkling of blood. But what Peter is doing is uh, when Peter talks about uh, how we are exiles for or because of the sprinkling of blood, what he's talking about is an Old Testament ceremony. He's using a metaphor that he pulled from what we know of as Exodus 24. There, um, Moses had been given the law, and he's coming down from Mount Sinai, and then he and the people build an altar, and then they worship God. And what they did, and the way that they did that was that Moses read God's word to the people, which was just given to them, and Moses then sacrificed uh, certain animals to honor God according to the law that they just heard. And then Moses leaves some of the blood on the altar, some of the blood on the altar, and then he turns and takes the rest of it, and he sprinkles it on the people. Seems a bit strange, right? We might need just a couple moments to process that. But this step served a purpose. This action was meant to signify, both visually as well as ceremonially, that the people of Israel were now participants in this covenant that was just made. They are participants. They are direct participants. The blood on the altar signified God's agreement to fulfill his law, or to hold steady on his law, and the blood sprinkled on the people signified their consent to obey that law. 
God would hold true to it and they were to obey it. Now, how does this apply to what Peter's trying to get at, right? Well, when you trust in Jesus' atoning sacrifice, you are not just accepting the benefit of his death, you are also submitting to who he is as both Lord and Savior. You're submitting your life to him as both Lord and Savior because that is who he is. And the practical outworking of this, of this wonderful truth is profound because it's talking about our obedience, the thing that we see in front of our face, the thing that we are called to you know, judge a tree by its fruit. This is the thing that we have most control over. You see, our first true act of obedience is faith in Christ which comes after regeneration. Our first true act of obedience is, in fact, faith in Christ because it comes after spiritual regeneration. There had to be death in order to give us life. Now, with this introduction, as I said, we're just sort of chipping the iceberg. As we get with this introduction into this, this, uh, this letter from, first from Peter, there's a lot. And again, honestly, I've only given you a sample of what's to come. But as we go from here today, this is what I want you to see. This is what I would like for you to take from here and to understand. Our salvation, which is sort of shorthanded into the word, the gospel, is not unintentional. Our salvation is not unintentional. We can see that in just these two verses. We see that all three persons of the one true God are involved in our salvation and they desire our inclusion into the kingdom family. They are all active in what is going on. The Father initiated our creation and our redemption. The Son did the work of redeeming us as we are part of the fallen creation. And then the Spirit regenerates, sanctifies, and applies that redemption to all of those who now believe. This is the work of the Trinity. And Maranatha, I know that this is heavy. I know that this is hard to swallow. But as we continue to to walk this out with one another, as we continue to, to wrestle with the other truths that we're meant to understand that are written down in the Scripture, as Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let grace and peace wash over you. Let it be multiplied to you because grace is the loving and unmerited favor of God that we've been given in Christ. That is what it means by grace. And it's only by that grace that we can experience the inexpressible, peaceful condition of being right with God through Christ. That is why there is no longer fear. Because there's nothing to fear because of Christ because of, what is he, because of what he has done, how he completed the law, and he fulfilled the covenant. Later on in this letter, Peter is going to remind them and us of who we are now. As we go from here, remember who you are now. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Maranatha, let us pray to that end. Let us pray that we reside there. 
That this world doesn't cast our eyes off of what's important, but we stay there. Maranatha, let us live in who we are. Let's be the people that we are, we have been made into. Let's pray to that now. Father, we ask for transformation, Lord. We ask for greater faith. Lord, continue to sanctify us. We believe that you will because you've promised to do so. We're so grateful for the work that you've done in us already. And I pray, Lord, that as you work on us individually, we believe that you are also working on us corporately. Help us to see each other as our family, our brothers and sisters. Help us to draw close. Help us to be united because you told us through our unity, through our faith and our connection to one another, that we are a proclamation that you truly did send your son to this world for salvation. Let us be a lampstand that shines brightly for your truth and that we are willing to wrestle with the things that we don't understand. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to your Son. Thank you, Lord, for the Spirit's power that guides us and leads us. It's in your Son's name that we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.